Hey, all right. Today is uh, Father's Day. So happy Father's Day to the dads out there. Um, we, we believe the scriptures teach that, that fatherhood is a, is a high and a holy calling. And so we want to celebrate dads. We want to pray for dads. We want to thank God for good dads today. Um, my dad is here, super grateful um, for him and so grateful just, just for what he's meant in my life. Um, and, yet I, and yet I also know that not everybody has had that experience, the same experience that I've had. And so um, I want to also recognize that for many people, this day can be a really hard day. And it can be um, a day with some deep wounds, whether it be wounds with your relationship with your dad, or maybe you're a dad and you've got broken relationship with your kids, or, or maybe you've lost your dad. Uh, maybe you're a dad who's lost a child. Maybe you want to be a dad and, and, and the Lord hasn't given that to you. And so there's all these different things that get rolled into and it becomes deeply personal and it can be deeply wonderful and it can also be deeply painful painful when we think about fatherhood. And so, and so we know that God has made um, fatherhood to be a reflection of who he is as our father in heaven. And yet, even the best earthly fathers fail. I fail every single day to live up to that calling to reflect the fatherhood of God. And so what we want to do before we jump into the, into the scriptures today is we want to thank God for, for, for good dads out there. We want to pray for dads and their holy calling. But we also want to make space and we want to recognize and we want to pray for those of us for whom this can be a difficult day. So let's let's take some time and pray um, before we get into the scriptures. Father in heaven, we're amazed that we can even call you Father. And we're so grateful that, that you are the perfect Father. For those of us who have had great dads, you you point us, you, you draw us as the even greater father, as the, as the perfect father of which all earthly fathers are just a dim reflection. And for those of us who haven't had great dads, for those who have had a lot of pain um, in that relationship, we also realize that you are the perfect father who loves us perfectly, who invites us to come before you and to, to enter into your presence without fear of rejection, without fear of abuse, without fear of being hurt, because um, we know that you're a perfect father who loves to give good gifts to your children and loves for your children to come to you. And so we come to you now. As we come to your word now, we pray that we would come to your word um, and that we wouldn't hear it just as words on a page, that we wouldn't just hear it as religious ideas, that we wouldn't even just hear it as, as the 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 precepts of some remote king out there in the universe, but, but that that king is our father who invites us to come to him. And so give us ears to hear, give us eyes to see, give us hearts to feel your love and your care for us and to respond with love and worship and obedience to you. I pray it in Christ's name, amen. Hey, we're uh, continuing our series today in the book of Acts. And so what we're doing throughout this time is we're going through the first few chapters of the book of Acts and we're looking at what does it look like when the spirit of Jesus comes upon the people of Jesus, fills them with the power and the presence of Jesus, and then sends them out on the mission of Jesus. Jesus told us that he came to bring life to the world, that he came to bring the kingdom of heaven to earth, that in Jesus and now in his people, the kingdom of heaven is invading this world. The kingdom of light is invading the darkness. And so if that's true, then it would be naive for us to think that the kingdom of darkness is just going to give up without a fight. Right? Genesis to Revelation, you read the entire Bible, and it is the story of this great cosmic battle 
Between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of the evil one. Between the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness. Between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, Genesis 3.15 says. C.S. Lewis said it this way. He says, enemy-occupied territory. That is what the world is. Christianity is the story of how the rightful king has landed. You might say, landed in disguise. And it's calling us to take part in a great campaign of sabotage. That's what we're doing here today. We're doing sabotage today. When we follow Jesus throughout the week, we're not just getting together for a religious service. We're not just living moral, religious lives. We are joining the risen king in his campaign of sabotage to bring life and healing and hope back to his world. And that's what you see in the book of Acts. That's what you see specifically in Acts 4, which we're going to look at today. We're going to see how we, as followers of Jesus, participate in this great cosmic battle between the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness, and how the church, how the followers of Jesus respond when the kingdom of darkness inevitably pushes back against the kingdom of light. So we don't, we don't typically like to think about this, but, but part of following Jesus is experiencing opposition. Right? The fact is that we follow a crucified Messiah. We follow him on the road to the cross. And so if we're really following him, then we will experience opposition just as he experienced opposition. And one of the primary jobs of the Holy Spirit is to sustain the people of God in the face of opposition with grace and truth. The Spirit's not just there to give us warm, fuzzy feelings. He's not just there like a genie in a bottle to give us whatever we want at the moment. He is there to sustain us in the face of spiritual war. You see this from the very beginning of the church, Acts chapter 4, which we're going to be looking at. So last week, Acts chapter 3, we're just picking up the narrative where we picked up last week. And here's what's happened. Peter and John have healed this man who couldn't walk. They tell him, in the name of Jesus of Nazareth, rise and walk. And the guy rises and walks. And he begins leaping and shouting and praising God. And all these people crowd around. And then Peter preaches this sermon calling the people to turn to Jesus. And they do. Like thousands of people become followers of Jesus. But then look what happens. Look at Acts chapter 4, starting verse 1. The priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed, so the number of men who believed grew to about 5,000. The next day, the rulers, the elders, and the teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas, the high priest, was there, and so were Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and many others of the high priest's family. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them. By what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and are being asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. 
When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished, and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. But since they could see the man who had been healed standing there with them, there was nothing they could say. So they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin, the ruling council, and then conferred together. What are we going to do with these men, they asked. Everyone living in Jerusalem knows they have performed a notable sign. We can't deny it. But to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn them to speak no longer to anyone in his name. Then they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or to teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or to listen to him? You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speak, uh, speaking about what we have seen and heard. After further threats, they let them go. They could not decide how to punish them because all the people were praising God for what had happened. For the man who was miraculously healed was over 40 years old. What we're going to see today is how the Spirit empowers the people of Jesus to face opposition for our faith. We're going to see how they, the first followers of Jesus, experience this opposition. And then we're going to see what we can learn for, for, the, for as we experience the opposition that will inevitably come our way as followers of Jesus. So three things we're going to see in this passage. We're going to see the reason behind opposition. We're going to see the response to opposition. And we're going to see the resources to face opposition. First, the reason behind opposition. So remember what's happened. Peter and John have healed this man. They performed this miracle. I mean, this guy who couldn't walk, now he can walk. It's a great display of power, but not only of power, it's a great display of kindness. They've healed this man. They've alleviated massive human suffering in this man's life. That is a wonderful, that's a good thing. And you sit there and you look at that and you say, how can anyone have a problem with that? Look what it says, verses 1 and 2. The priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. So that's why they were disturbed. They were preaching the resurrection of Jesus and the hope that that brings to the world. Now, let me, let me just pause here and say something. Um, because one of the things that happens with Christians often is that we develop what I call, uh, not just me, what many people call a persecution complex. And here's what I mean by that. We look at the scriptures and, and we look at the world and we know that persecution and opposition are part of following Jesus. But sometimes what happens is that then we start to blame everything on persecution, Everything is some sinister plot to oppose our faith. And listen, persecution is a real thing. It is a real thing throughout the history of the church. It was a real thing in the scriptures. It is a real thing today. But do you know what else is a real thing? Being a jerk. Like sometimes the reason we experience opposition is not because we're standing with the gospel, is because we're living lives opposed to the gospel, because we're acting like jerks, because sometimes we're just arrogant or hard-hearted or unreasonable. Listen, the gospel makes us people who speak the truth, but it also makes us people who live lives of mercy and humility and kindness. Remember, that's, that's what started this whole thing. It was an act of kindness that Peter and John showed to this man in need. So, so let's make sure that we are living lives of humility and kindness before we start claiming that we're being persecuted for our faith. And yet, and yet, even as we do that, we know that there will be some people who don't like it when we preach the good news of Jesus. Some people will love us for our acts of kindness, but they will hate us when we open our mouths to declare the reason behind that kindness. 
These religious leaders here are not upset about this man being healed, but they are disturbed because they're preaching the resurrection of the dead. They're preaching that Jesus has risen from the dead and that one day he will return to set all things right and make all things new. The resurrection of Jesus disrupts the status quo. The resurrection turns everything upside down. The resurrection makes the claim that a guy who was crucified on a Roman cross as an enemy of the state under the curse of God and man is the king of the universe who has defeated sin and death and hell, who is the absolute sovereign who reigns on the throne of the universe. And the religious leaders didn't like that. It says they were disturbed by this fact. They were shaken by it. Because they they felt their control and their power slipping away. If you realize what happened historically here, these religious leaders had made a deal with Rome. They made a deal with Caesar. And and basically what it said was, hey, you guys can keep your little slice of the kingdom here. You can keep your temple. You can do all your religious stuff over here. But you need to pay pay homage to Caesar. You need to realize that Caesar is Lord. And then these guys come along, Peter and John, and they say, Jesus is the true king. Caesar's not Lord. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is the one who has come to deliver his people and reign on the throne of the universe. And he has proven that by raising from the dead. And that was a threat to their power. They wanted to preserve the status quo, but Jesus disrupts the status quo. Jesus confronts the kingdoms of this world and calls us into the kingdom of God. And notice here who these guys are. These leaders, they're not raving pagans. These are priests. These are religious people. Later in the book of Acts, you'll actually see pagans opposing the gospel. But here, it's the religious leaders of the people of Israel, people who knew their Bible, people who had memorized the Bible, people who taught the Bible, people who led worship in the temple. They are the ones who are opposing Jesus and his kingdom. So the fact is, for every single one of us, we naturally want to hold on to our own power. We naturally want to hold on to our own authority. We want to protect our own little kingdoms. We don't want Jesus to be king. We want to be king. And the fact is, you can oppose God through religion or through irreligion. Here's what I mean by irreligion. You can oppose God by just outright rebellion denying that he exists, or, or, or maybe, maybe you maybe believe that he kind of exists, but you don't live like he does. You just live life on your own terms. You live like you're your own God. You call the shots, and you're the king of your own little kingdom. So you can oppose God that way, but, and I think probably this might be the bigger danger for many of us in church, some of us oppose God through our religion. We, we, we trust in our religious rituals. We trust in our moral lifestyles. Acts 4 tells us that salvation is only found in Jesus. And yet, so often, we try to save ourselves. That's just another way of opposing God. Trying to save yourself is another way of holding on to your own authority. It's another way of trying to build your own kingdom. It's another way of trying to be your own God. And in the process, we end up missing out on the kingdom of God. And the truth is that often, if if we're really, really honest with ourselves, it's not even that we don't believe, it's that we don't want to believe. Verse 16, look what these religious religious leaders say. What are we going to do with these men, they ask? Everyone living in Jerusalem knows that they have performed notable sign. We can't deny it. But to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn them to speak no longer in this name. Now, I find this absolutely fascinating. They don't deny the miracle. 
They don't try to discredit the healing. They just try to ignore it. They just try to sweep it under the rug. They know the apostles have truth on their side. They have seen firsthand the power of Jesus to heal a man who couldn't walk, but they're holding on to their own control. They're holding on to their own authority. They're trying to ignore the truth that is right there, staring them in the face. One of the things you see with Jesus is that people will ignore the evidence if it doesn't line up with what they want to believe. You see it all throughout the Gospels. And I think if we're honest with ourselves, many of us might even see that in our own lives. You know, people sometimes say that Christianity is wishful thinking. But, but what if denying Christianity is its own brand of wishful thinking? Like, like what if you don't believe because you don't want to believe? What, what if we just ignore the truth that's in front of us? I mean, honestly, even as followers of Jesus, we do this to some extent, We see some truth clearly laid out in the scriptures. We see something that the Lord has clearly shown us, but we try to explain it away because it doesn't match up with what we want to believe. This is why we all naturally oppose the good news of Jesus, and it's why the good news of Jesus always experiences opposition when it goes into the world. So the reason behind opposition is because there's a conflict of kingdoms, because Jesus is calling us out of the kingdom of death into the kingdom of life. So that's why they experience opposition. But secondly, look how they respond. Look at the response to opposition. Look at, look at verse 8. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and are being asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. And they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that these were unschooled, ordinary men. They were astonished, and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. Look how how they responded. Notice how they did not respond, first of all. They didn't run They didn't hide. They didn't freak out. The Holy Spirit empowered them to respond with courage. Now, courage, not arrogance. There's a difference between courage and arrogance. Not arrogance, not bravado, not some insecure chest-thumping attempt to prove how tough they are. Courage, calm, consistent confidence in the risen Christ and in the Spirit who is living inside of them. The Greek word for courage here is the word parasia. It's the idea of being open, of, of, of not hiding anything. They don't feel the need to hide, and they don't feel the need to hide the message that they're preaching. They preach it openly. They preach it honestly. They preach it clearly. They preach it boldly. Verse 18, then they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, which is right in God's eyes? to listen to you or to him. You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. I love that. We fear God. And because we fear God, we don't fear anything else. They don't freak out. They don't have to jump on social media and rail about how the leaders are trying to take away their religious freedoms. They don't curl up in the fetal position. They don't spiral into despair. They keep preaching. And as we're going to see next week, they keep praying. 
Friends, this is really important for us to get in this particular cultural moment because I think if we're honest, many of us as followers of Jesus the past few years have made us afraid of a lot of things. And there is this whole fear-mongering industry that has cropped up to exacerbate those fears. There are print publications and websites, and TV stations, and political candidates, and authors, and speakers, and institutions, and guys blogging from their mom's basement who have built their entire platform on making Christians afraid, and keeping us afraid, as a way of getting us to buy their product, or donate to their cause, or vote for their candidate. And listen, there are real reasons to be concerned. There is no doubt about that. There is real opposition to the gospel in our world. But I also want us to see that's nothing new. That's been happening for the past 2,000 years. That's how the church started. The church started when our Savior, when our King was crucified as an enemy of the state. But he rose from the dead. That's how the church started in in the book of Acts, and that's how the church spread. In fact, if you read the rest of the book of Acts, you find that the primary way that God gets the gospel to go to the nations is through persecution. And And it was the confidence of the early Christians in the face of persecution that turned the world upside down. As they were fed to the lions, as they were dipped in tar and impaled on stakes to be lit on fire as human torches in Nero's gardens, they went to their deaths singing because they knew that death is not the end. The confidence in the face of opposition that they showed showed that there was something real about their message. They knew that even death couldn't ultimately hurt them because Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. And I want us to know that that is just as true of us today as it was of them 2,000 years ago. We can stand in the face of opposition, and we can confidently sing with Luther, let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also, the body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. The truth of the resurrection The truth that Jesus is king and gives us a kingdom that cannot be shaken enables us to face anything that life or death throws at us. So how do we live with that? How do we live with that kind of confidence? Where do we find the resources to face opposition? Like what enabled them to face prison and ostracism and eventually death for the sake of the truth? You're gonna see three things in this passage. First, they were able to face opposition because they were filled with the Holy Spirit. Filled with the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 8. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said this to them. So it's fascinating. Peter and John are on trial. They should be on the defensive here. And instead, the Spirit of God says, Peter, you're not the one on trial. You're the one who's going to use this as an opportunity to preach the gospel and call people to faith in Christ. It's one of the primary jobs of the Holy Spirit. He empowers the people of God to boldly face opposition to the kingdom of God. I wish I had time to unpack this today because you see it all throughout the Bible. You see it in the book of Exodus. You see it in the book of Joshua. You see it in the book of Judges. You see it in the book of 1 Samuel. You see it in the book of Ezekiel. You see it all throughout the Hebrew scriptures that the spirit of God is the spirit that empowers the people of God to advance the kingdom of God even in the face of spiritual war. Just one example of this because it's a really well-known example. Um, 1 Samuel chapter 16. 
So 1 Samuel chapter 16, there's, there's King Saul, who's the king over Israel, and, and the Spirit of God is on him. But God says, I'm going to take away the kingdom from Saul. I'm going to take away my spirit from Saul, and my spirit's going to come upon David. David is my chosen king. And so what happens in 1 Samuel 16 is the Spirit of God leaves King Saul and goes and rests on this little 12-year-old shepherd boy named David. And then the very next thing you see is probably the most famous story in the whole Old Testament, the story of David and Goliath. And and what's happening? Goliath is opposing the people of God. Goliath is terrorizing the people of God. He comes out every day threatening the people of God. And where's Saul? Where's the king who's supposed to be leading his people in the battle? He's in his tent, shaking in his armor. He's petrified because the spirit of God has left him. But then David comes along the one who's been anointed by the Spirit of God. And this baby-faced shepherd boy goes boldly into battle with nothing but a sling and a stone and delivers the people of God. Why? It's because David was naturally strong and courageous. It was because he was such a great warrior. No, it's because he had been emboldened and empowered by the Spirit of the living God. That's what the Spirit does. And that's the same spirit that lives inside of you and me. He emboldens and empowers the people of God to do battle for the kingdom of God. We as followers of Jesus today don't wage war with guns and bombs and spears and swords and slingshots and rocks and all those other kinds of things. But we do fight with words of truth and with deeds of love. That's why Peter and John are able to heal this man, and that's why they can boldly proclaim the healing and the hope and the salvation that is only found in Jesus Christ because the spirit of the living God is filling them. The same spirit that lives inside of you was filling them. So they're able to face opposition because they're filled with the spirit. Second, they're able to face opposition because they knew that Jesus Christ had risen from the dead. Jesus has risen from the dead. Toward the end of his life, um, the great British missionary and theologian by the name of Leslie Newbegin gave an interview. And, and the interviewer asked him, okay, it's the end of your life. Look around at the trends you see in society. Look around the trends you see in the church. Are you optimistic or are you pessimistic? And Newbegin said this. I love it. He said, I am neither an optimist nor a pessimist. Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. That's brilliant. I am neither an optimist nor a pessimist. Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. See, what the gospel does for us is it enables us to look realistically at the world in all of its brokenness and all of its ugliness without being crushed by what we see. Because on the one hand, the gospel reminds us that suffering and pain and opposition will will come. We follow a crucified Savior. But on the other hand, it reminds us that suffering and pain and persecution and opposition will not have the final word because we follow a risen Savior. Jesus Christ isn't just crucified. He is risen from the dead. And what that does is that frees you to stand for the truth while at the same time loving the very people who oppose the truth. That's the way Jesus loved us. You actually see this in verse 11 here. He says Jesus is the stone that the builders rejected that has become the cornerstone. He was was crucified. He was rejected to become the cornerstone, to become the foundation for salvation for all who would trust in him, for the very people who killed him. He gives up his life. It's the final reason we're able to face opposition. They boldly faced opposition because they knew that Jesus is the only way to be saved. It's the only way to be saved. Acts 4, 12 
Salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. They stood before the religious rulers and they said, look, we can't stop preaching the good news of Jesus because he is our only hope. And he is the only hope for the world. Now, I fully realize that 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 sounds backwards in our day. That sounds narrow-minded in our day. Our our world tells us religion is something you keep private. Faith is something you just kind of keep to yourself. But that's actually not the way that most people throughout the history of the world would have thought about faith. And it's certainly not the way Jesus talked about faith. Jesus claimed to be the savior of the world. Matthew chapter 28 all authority, not some authority, not authority for the people who kind of feel like it. No, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples, make followers of me, make students of me on, among all nations. It says, I'm the one who has come to set you free. And not only you, I'm the one who's come to set the world free. I have come to set all things right and to make all things new. And he's proven it by rising from the dead. And he promises that he's going to raise us from the dead. And one day he's going to raise the entire universe from the dead. So the gospel makes this universal claim. And and, and we realize we're told in our day, no, you shouldn't make any universal claims. It's okay if Jesus is your way to God. Just don't say that Jesus is the way to God. You, You can believe in Jesus just as long as you treat him the same as every other religious teacher. But the problem with that is that the Jesus who's the same as every other religious teacher is not the Jesus of history. It's not the Jesus who actually lived. It's not the Jesus you actually find in the historical documents. The Jesus who actually lived is the Jesus who says, I am the light of the world. If you want to have hope, if you want to have light in this darkness, you got to have me. He's the, he's the Jesus who said, I am the bread of life. If you want to find sustenance, if you want to find satisfaction for your soul, you've got to have me. He's the Jesus who said, I am the resurrection and the life. If you want to have hope for whatever life or death throws at you, you've got to have me. He says, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. See, no other religious leader even claimed anything like that. Jesus is utterly different from every other religious leader. Other religious leaders, they were always pointing away from themselves. They were pointing to God, or they were pointing to morality, or they were pointing to a certain philosophy. They were pointing away from themselves to God. But Jesus points to himself and says, if you want to know God, you got to know me. Sometimes people will say that's narrow. But the fact is, Any universal claim, is any definition of truth is narrow. Jesus says, if you want to know the truth, if you want to know the way, if you want to know the life, come to me. And what's so interesting is this seems very exclusive to us. Jesus is the only way to God, but it's deeply inclusive. In fact, it's the exclusivity that makes it so inclusive. The fact that salvation is only found in Jesus means that this good news isn't just for one group of people. It's for people of all times in all places. That's why, that's why Peter and John speak so boldly to these leaders. That's why these poor, uneducated men, kind of like the lowest rung of society, feel the confidence to speak to these religious leaders who are like the elites in society. Because verse 13, when they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and they took note 
that these men had been with Jesus. These men had encountered Jesus. They had encountered the living God, the crucified and risen king. They had seen him live and die and rise from the dead, and that gave them a courage that nothing could take away. These poor, uneducated men were friends of the king. They had literally eaten dinner with the God of the universe. And the good news of Jesus, the gospel of Jesus, invites all of us to experience that. The exclusivity is what makes it inclusive. Salvation is only found in Jesus. But what that means is that the good news of Jesus is for everyone. It's for the elites, like these religious leaders here. It's for the lowly and the uneducated and the kind of the bottom of society like Peter and John. It's for the haves and the have-nots. The rich and the poor, Democrats and Republicans, black people and white people and people of every tribe and tongue and nation. It's for the religious and the irreligious. It's for the people who have lived moral, upstanding lives, and it's for the people who have made a moral disaster of their lives. It's for everyone. Salvation and hope are only found in Jesus, not found in our socioeconomics, not found in our level of education, not found in our political party or our ethnic identity, not found in our religiosity, not found in our morality, not found in our own attempts to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and be better people, not found in in, in social acceptance, not found in our bank account, not found in our family of origin, not found in all of these other things that we put our hope in. Hope and salvation is found in Jesus. Friends, that's the salvation that Jesus offers you today. Whether whether you're a religious person or whether you're you're not a religious person, whether you're a person who you feel kind of decent about the way you've done things in life or you look like you got it all together, or whether you're a person who's made an absolute wreck of everything and you can be honest about that. Listen, that's the hope Jesus offers you today. He says, come to me Be part of my family and experience the salvation that only I can give. That's what we experience. And as followers of Jesus, that's the salvation and the hope that we proclaim to the world around us. So let's let's let that message, that hope of truth and salvation in Jesus, give us hope for the coming week. And then let's take that hope and that salvation to our neighborhoods and to the nations. All right, let's pray. Father, we recognize that so often we just, try to, we just try to have our own little kingdoms. We live like we are our own gods, even if we wouldn't say it in those terms. Even, even in our religiosity, so, so often our religiosity and our morality is just a way to do damage control on our lives. It's a way to make us feel a little better about ourselves. It's a way to try to be acceptable to other people around us. It's a way to try to make us not feel so guilty about ourselves. But it's all all just smoke and mirrors, God. So we pray that you would you would cut through that smoke and that mirrors, that you would cut through our religious games 
that you would show us our need for you. Wherever we come from, whatever our background, whatever our life looks like now, that you would show us. I would say even, even if we're followers of Jesus who have been followers of Jesus for decades, would you remind us again that you are our only hope? that you are our salvation, that the salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be safe. And I pray for any in this room who don't know you, Jesus, who haven't trusted in you, draw them to yourself. Father, I pray that, that guilt and that shame and that fear wouldn't keep anyone from experiencing the salvation that's found in you because you came, Jesus, and you died and you rose again to deal with our guilt and our shame and our fear. And you took our sin on yourself and you took it to the grave and you buried it there. And you rose again and you offer us that resurrected new life in you. So I pray that you would take that truth, that you would put it in the front of our minds, that you would put it in the center of our hearts, that you would put it as the foundation of our lives, and that you would, you would put your praise in our lips as we worship you now. I pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. You guys can have a seat. Hey, sometimes when we hear a message about opposition or struggle or things like that, I think a lot of times what happens is what we hear, and it's not what the scriptures say, but what we hear is try harder, be better, do better, be tougher, be stronger, work harder, all these, all these different kinds of things. But the reality is that what we just sang is the confession that, cry, that teaches us to cry out to God, I'm not enough, God. For this thing that I'm facing, it might be something from external, it might be a situation in my life. Maybe it is, maybe it's opposition for your faith. Maybe it's that internal struggle with sin and temptation or depression or anxiety or any number of different things. The, the, the reality is I'm not enough. I'm not enough to just muscle through it. I'm not enough just to be strong enough and get through it. Also, the good news is you don't have to be enough because Jesus is enough. And the message, the foundational truth of Christianity is not try harder. It is not do better. It is, it is finished. It is finished. Jesus has died and risen again to bring us into the family of God, all of our sins forgiven. And then his spirit comes and fills us and gives us this power, puts his breath in our lungs as we go throughout the week. And so my prayer is that you go throughout this week with that confidence, that realistic confidence that whatever life or death throws at us, God is with us, God is for us, and his spirit is inside of us key verse this week is one of the most important verses just on the Christian message. It's Acts chapter 4, verse 12. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. And so let's make sure that we take that and we understand that not just for other people out there, but for us, that all of our hope is tied up in Jesus. Let's stand and let's receive this benediction. This is just a benediction based on uh, Acts 4, this passage that we talked about today. May the spirit of the risen Christ empower you to serve your neighbors humbly and to proclaim the gospel boldly for the glory of God. Amen. Peace be with you. Have a great week.